A reading from Micah 6. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. O my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery, and I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the saving acts of the Lord. This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to have you with us this morning. Uh, We're in the book of Micah, and we'll be looking at the first eight verses of uh, chapter 6. So if you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to turn there. In the book of Micah, what we have is a book that was written about 2,800 years ago by a prophet of God speaking God's word to God's people in the southern kingdom of Israel, which was called Judah. These folks were very religious. They had the city of Jerusalem as their capital, and the temple was there, and so they did a lot of things right, but they did a lot of things wrong. And their hearts and their minds did not belong to God. And so Micah was sent as a prophet to tell this people that they were going to come under judgment, that the Assyrian Empire from the northeast was going to come down and and ultimately enter the southern kingdom and come right to the gates of Jerusalem, and that the people needed to repent. The people, however, were not unlike the people in 2023. They had two prevailing views. One was and you can determine whether this has ever sounded familiar to you. I know I'm not perfect, but I'm not bad enough to really come under the judgment of God. The other way that they thought was, if I do have a problem, all I really need to do is to do enough good things to counterbalance the bad things and God will be satisfied. The problem was Micah's message was was very different. Uh, Micah's message was God takes sin very seriously, and, and sin has to be punished. doesn't matter whether it's a little or whether it's a lot. That sin has created a barrier between man and God, and our relationship is not what it should be. And the only way for that relationship to be restored is for judgment to be satisfied because of sin. Of course, the prevailing view of mankind is it's really not that bad, God. You know, get serious. We'll we'll deal with this another way if you're unsatisfied. And so the people that were in Micah's day were telling him, will you stop with the judgment talk? Please, we're really not that bad off. In fact, our message is a message of peace, not only peace and prosperity amongst ourselves, but at peace with God. Uh, you need to just be quiet, Micah, and, and shut this down. 
Well, Micah broke his prophecies into three sections uh, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And each one of those sections begins with a section of judgment and then actually talks about the reality that God is going to provide salvation after judgment has occurred. And the section that we're looking at today is the beginning of the third section and the third and last section, I might say. And and it begins with the word hear, hear what the Lord has to say. And it's the beginning of the judgment section. So we'll look at the first eight verses. And I want you to understand how these eight verses work. In, in two ways, this is the way I see it, and I hope that I can help you see it this way. It's a conversation between God and this people that I've been talking about. But the people don't actually talk. God does all the talking in all eight verses. But he tells us what they have been saying. You know what I'm saying? So I'm recording or telling you that this is a conversation. And ultimately, this conversation develops into a trial. A trial between what the people think about God and what God tells them they should think about him. So if you look with me at verse 3, God is quoting what the people have said about him as the trial begins. And and God says this, O my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. So apparently two things are going on with this people. The, The first is, They have made accusations against God. God, you've done something we don't like. And and they're actually tired of God. They have said somehow and in some way, God, you, you make me weary. I'm tired. That's the accusations the people have made against God. And so God asks these questions, what what have I done to you and how have I made you wearied? Now, let me just tell you this as, as just a hint and a sidebar, and you don't have to pay for this. Anytime God asks a people or an individual questions, it never goes well for the people or the individual. And you may see that as the book plays out and we conclude it in the next two weeks. But, but here God says, what have, what have I done to you and how have I made you tired? So God's going to talk all the way through. Now let the trial begin and God calls the jury. And it's very fascinating who he makes the jury. Look with me at verses 1 and 2. Hear what the Lord says. Arise. Plead your case before the mountains and let the hills hear your voice. Hear you mountains, the indictment of the Lord and you enduring foundations of the earth for the Lord has an indictment against his people. He will contend with Israel. I am calling the mountains and the hills as my jury. The people have an indictment against me, and I have an indictment against them. And, O mountains, I want you to be the jury. That's the stage, you see. Now, why the mountains? 
It's a very interesting question. And really and truly, I could preach an entire sermon on this. Well, the mountains, as the text tells us, are, are one of the most enduring things in all creation. You know, when the waters and the skies were separated, the mountains rose, and, and there the mountains have been since the beginning of time. And, and they're the most enduring thing that man can see. God has given his word and his law from atop mountains like Sinai. But it's also the very voice of God that makes the mountains tremble to their root. And, and within the book of Micah, a couple of chapters before, God has said that when the new heavens and the new earth and the new Zion are created, it will be a mountain larger and taller than any mountain that has ever been created. And so God gives this imagery of the mountains being the jury in this case. Well, we know the indictment of the people against God. God, you have wronged us and we're tired of you. That is, that is, that's, that's been the case since the beginning of time. God, you've wronged us. You, you don't see us correctly and, and we're tired of it. We're, we're tired of you. But God says, answer me. Now, God is going to make a response. I'm not going to call it God's defense because God never defends himself. But, but he is going to try to appeal to the people against their accusations. And what God does is he brings up their past. Now their past, Israel's past, is a little elusive to us. Because we didn't live through it. It's not part of our ancestral history. And it doesn't mean much to us. And quite frankly, including myself, we don't know our Old Testaments well enough to know the significance behind Israel's past. But these hearers would have understood what God is saying. And with that in mind, let me just read verses 4 and 5 as God brings up their past. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. In, in just a very quick few words, God reminds the people that in their past, there was a point in history when they were first of all enslaved as a nation. Not only were they enslaved, they were terribly mistreated. Not enough food, not enough water, not enough clothing, etc., etc., etc. This went on for decades. They did not have their own land, etc. And God delivered them miraculously from the hands of the Egyptians. We know the story of the ten plagues, the crossing of the Red Sea, the manna and the quail being delivered by God from heaven. Their sandals never wore out in the desert. And God provided them leadership. Leadership in the form of Moses and Aaron and so on and so forth. And God is saying, there was a time when you were slaves when I redeemed you. I made you my people. Not because you were great in number, not because you were valuable, not because you did anything on your own to deserve it, but I delivered you. 
But then he continues in verse 5, O my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him. Very quickly, and again with very few words, I could take the time to take us back there, but Balak was the king of Moab, which was a Gentile nation, and he went to Balaam and said, I want you to curse the people. I want you to curse the entire nation of Israel. And he did, and God spared them from that curse. And and no challenges came to the people of Israel because of that interchange. And I want to add one more subtle comment here. It says that Balak was the king of Moab. If you were here last week, and you remember that we saw that the, the king who was going to be eternal came from Bethlehem, and I talked about Ruth, the Moabitess, who came to Bethlehem and was redeemed by Boaz and was brought into the people of God. Well, here it was that the Balak, the very king of Moab, was trying to get a curse on the very people of Israel, and God spared them that curse. And then he continues and he talks about, do you remember what happened from Shittim to Gilgal? that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. Well, that's very elusive to us. Most of us couldn't find Shittim, you know, with two hands and a basketball. But but Shittim was the last place that Israel was in before they crossed the promised land. Before they promised into the, the promised land and came to the place called Gilgal. But you know what happened at Shittim? Almost the entire nation revolted against God and fell once again into idolatry. And God did punish that sin in that instance, at that moment, but he continued in his faithfulness and brought the people, in spite of their sin, into the promised land where he delivered on his promise. You can read about this in Joshua, but let me just read what happened from that transition from Shittim to Gilgal. In Joshua chapter 5, God says, And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. And while the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. And the day after the Passover on that very day, they ate the produce of the land and unleavened cakes and parched grain. Now this means very little to us, but what these three instances represent are the fact that, first of all, God had made promises and God keeps promises. He makes promises to an unfaithful people and keeps them and maintains his faithfulness even though the people are never faithful. And he takes a people who are slaved, cursed, and defiantly disobedient And says, I am going to maintain my faithfulness to you. Now let's ask God's question again. Or the people's question. 
How have I wronged you? How have I made you tired? But we got to keep in mind as we look at the last three verses what the people's perspective was. The people's perspective are, one, I haven't done anything wrong or I haven't done enough to deserve judgment. But you got this preacher who keeps telling me I'm going to be judged. Or, if I've done something wrong, all I really got to do is up the ante and have the good outweigh the bad. Well, in those three instances, even though they're elusive to us, did the people do anything to warrant being spared slavery, curses, and disobedience? No. God did it all. Did the people pay off God? No. Were they good enough to deserve having judgment ignored? No. And so here is the people's kind of defense, so to speak. Starting at verses 6, and then I'll read 7 as well. This is now God speaking for the people, but them saying this. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Okay. Bear with me, this is a really important point. Because it shows the heart of the people. They were living in the midst of the sacrificial system. They understood the Day of the Atonement. They understood what it meant to bring grain offerings and to see a calf killed every year and so on and so forth. What does God want? Well, God wants a calf offered. If he's not satisfied with a calf, I'll give a thousand calves. If God is not satisfied with a thousand calves, we will create a thousand rivers that will run with oil as an offering to God. And if that doesn't work, I will offer my firstborn child as an offering to God. Well, there's part of us that wants to say, well, you know, I mean, these guys had some piety. These, these guys wanted to satisfy God, right? There's, uh, they're, they're willing to sacrifice their firstborn child, which is obscene, not only absurd, but they did. But what's behind this? The heart of it, the root of it is, I can buy off God. God can be bought off. All I need to do is get a sacrifice big enough that outweighs what this preacher, Micah, tells us God calls sin. And God can be bought off. 
But you see, God never asked for that. This was the God of their creation. Do you see what I'm saying? The people said, this is what God is like. God can be bought off, and it's the God of their own creation that they're tired of. You see what I'm saying? It's not the God of the Bible. It's not the God as he's revealed himself. It's not the God who has said, I have pulled you out of slavery. I have spared you from curses. I have judged but saved you when you sinned and brought you into the promise. I am the one who has saved all the way throughout. You're the one who has painted a picture of me as one who can be satisfied by you killing your own children. No wonder you're tired. Now, reasonable, logical people would say, the case is clear. <laughs> These people have fabricated a lie, which is true. They have created a picture of God that has nothing to do with how he has ever dealt with his people. And, and then we come to this verse 8, and verse 8 is probably one of the most famous verses in all the Old Testament. And it is also the mis most misused. <laughs> it, it's terribly, terribly misused and taken out of context. Because it's in the context of this trial where God is not defending himself but declaring himself who he is and how he's redeemed against the people who have fabricated what God really looks like. And look at verse 8 with me and, and notice how it gets spoken of. He has told you, O man, what is good. The first thing I want to point out here before we go through this, this is past tense. God has told you how he wants you to behave. This is not new. This is very important. This is not new information. This is not a new soundbite. This doesn't go on the front or the back of your tunic because this is old news. God has told you what is good. And then he says, what does the Lord require of you? but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. We cannot forget the context of what's going on. This verse is in National Monuments in Washington, D.C. It really is on T-shirts front and back. It's on posters. It's on, you know, I mean, it's probably painted on the sides of cars and, and everything else. But it's really, really taken out of context. It's being spoken to a people who should know, because it's past tense, what is being said about who God is and how they should respond. The first thing is, they should do justice. Now the problem is, when we hear the word justice, we think of a verdict. You know, that's how we determine whether justice 
is correct. The problem is that it's really not talking about a verdict because justice is only justice if we agree with it. That's the problem with humanity. We only call it just if we like it. And the problem with all three of these points, and I want to say this at the outset, is all three of them are radically oriented to who God is first so that we can think rightly. Because if we don't think rightly about God, which the people did not, and most of us, not necessarily in this room, but most of the people we encounter don't think rightly about God, we can't understand justice. You see, the first thing that needs to happen is for us to understand that we rightly deserve the judgment of God. That we are a people who enjoy the freedom God has given us because he has delivered us from slavery to sin into freedom in Christ. But we deserve his justice, his full weight of punishment because of the sin that separated us from him. And the only thing that's taken that away is the blood of Christ. So justice is deserved judgment. We have to understand that first and foremost. And in consequence of that, because we have been spared by the grace of God, this is how we are to do justice. We are to see all things in right and wrong through the eyes of a Savior who has spared us through grace. I hope this makes sense. So right and wrong has nothing to do with how Dave feels or what I think is right or what I think is wrong. It is what God says is right and what God says is wrong. And this is why a guy like Micah could walk through the streets of Jerusalem and say, that is sin, because God has said it is sin. God is going to bring judgment because God claims that that is wrong. And that is how we are to, quote, do justice. But it is always to be seasoned with grace. Because we are not, quote, the judge. We can make judgments after God because he has made judgments, but justice is solely based on God's sense of right and wrong. Now, don't get me wrong, this is not easy, this is not simple. And I'm not saying it's even possible outside the grace and mercy of God. It is not. But we must desire God's sense of justice and not my sense of justice. Most of our versions on point two say we are to love kindness. In the original, it's actually loving kindness. The same kind of eternal loving kindness that God has demonstrated to his people is to be that which we exemplify in our lives. It's not that when we see, and I'm not making fun and don't laugh, a little girl petting a puppy 
that we love that because it's kind. There's nothing wrong with loving that. But that's not God's eternal loving kindness. God's eternal loving kindness is him maintaining his faithfulness to his promise to a people who don't deserve it. Who have been defiantly disobedient, who have turned their backs on him from day one. And so we ask ourselves the question, and here's the challenge. It is easy for me to show kindness, to even be lovingly kind to somebody who is lovely, who is kind. It is easier for me to do kind things for somebody who is going to in turn do kind things for me. How is that not me being bought off? All I got to do is up the ante, you see. But God showed loving kindness to a very unkind, unloving people, including myself. And I maintain that unkindness and that unprettiness, you see. And so Jesus goes and tells me to pray for my enemies. Jesus tells me to suffer wrongs silently. I'm told by my Savior and Lord to pick up his cross and carry it after him. That is what loving kindness looks like. And the last is humility. And humility is the biggest tricky bit of business on the face of the planet. Because the second I tell you I'm humble, I'm not. You know, that's a tricky, that's a tricky business, isn't it? Or if I say enough poor things about myself, you will think that I am humble. It's, it's a tricky bit of business. But the text is very clear. Walk humbly with your God. And, and here's my suspicion of the people in Micah's day. They would have said that they did that. Why? Because it was a God of their own manufacture. I give him all that I can. I, I, I don't do anything really heinous and, and I buy him off. I'm walking humbly with God. But if one has the Bible's view of God and recognize that I've been called out of the slavery of sin into freedom in Christ, that I have been spared the curse of sin, that my sin has been punished and judgment has fallen upon Christ, and all of this undeserving by me. And that orientation is constantly in front of me. Then I begin to get a glimpse of what humility is with God. It has nothing to do with what you folk think of me, whether I'm an arrogant whatever, or whether it's... I'm walking humbly before my God. 
that's what matters. And, and the people here would dare say, I have something against you, God. And, and I'm tired of you. Because they served a God of their own manufacture. It's a humbling, humbling bit of business. You see, verse 8 is not about social justice. It will affect social justice. Absolutely. Make no, no qualms about that. It, it will affect every area of life, but it's not about social justice. It's about how a man or a woman understands their God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, the Bible. And we thank you for the mercy and the grace and the kindness that is shown to wretched sinners such as we. All praise and honor and glory belong to you. And Father, it is possible that, that even those of us who have been called out of darkness into your marvelous light have a twisted, perverted view of who you are. Have a view that believe that today I do not deserve your judgment or that you can be bought off or that I show loving kindness solely to those who are easy to love or that my humility is false or that my justice is of my own making and not your own. Forgive us if this falls true for any of us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.